Hello and welcome to a podcast of spurious morality. We have been joined by Mark. Hello, Mark. Hello. Um, so, talk to us about your favourite Big Finish releases of 2022. Well, um, I think I think the the one I probably got the, the most out of was um, Mind of the Hodiac. Um, I have to say, the, 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 I didn't actually get listening to as many big finish things this year as I'd have liked, just for budgetary reasons, as, as much as anything. But yeah, Hodiac was one of those ones where it got this big prestige announcement. It was Russell T Davis coming back. It was mentioned on the one show. You know, there was all this hype around it, and then. Um, I think, in a sense, it was almost a bit too much hype because expectations for a lot of people went a little more unreasonably high than they, they should have been yeah. because we're talking about a very embryonic um, Russell T. Davis essentially making a first attempt at a telly script. Um, but I have to say my own, my own expectations personally were exceeded by it because I, I just thought... For somebody just starting out, I thought it was um, extraordinary how much of a almost like a sea change you could feel him bringing into the. If, it, if this had been broadcast on television in, the, in 1987 and Colin Baker was still the doctor, um, it's it's almost like there's something of a. Is it just a dash of Cartmel in there or something? You know, it's it's kind of like Russell T. Davis. He's taken the best of the sixth doctor and he's also planting one foot firmly into the future. Um, in fact, he has this thing uh, with, with the Doctor being compared to Mr. Toad, you know, this Wind in the Willows reference thing that keeps coming, coming out th- throughout. And, and that's, that's kind of fun on the surface anyway, because that, 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 that is the only more accurate comparison I've ever heard to, um, to the Sixth Doctor it, it was in another fictional character is when somebody online, and I wish I could rem- remember who this was to give them credit, but they said he's he's the Fraser Crane of the doctors, and I thought, yeah, that that, that is perfect. But but this Mister Toad analogy uh, is is pretty close as well because he he's this wordy kind of best foot forward, um, you know, he's endearingly pompous, and and and, it, and there's a sort of self awareness in him about that in the story too. Um, so he, so he, he gets he gets likened or he likens himself. I can't remember which way it goes to Mister Toad, and then. Off the back of that, there's this constant thing that keeps coming up about the open road. You know, they're quoting the book, his talk of the, the open road. And I've seen one or two people online say, look, they slightly overdid the references there. But but I think it was important that they continued to thread that through because really it is that idea of what what is the open road signifying here? It's it's We've had four years of kind of Ian Levine-ish uh, ingestion of, of, of the show's own past and it's really time for you know like without, without kind of it, obviously the seventh doctor brings that freshness in in season 24 and then and then what the McCoy era becomes you know it becomes this inventive kind of whole renaissance thing but um, but but here you, you know it's it's kind of you, you can feel it yeah like it could have worked it could you, you could have had Colin still being Colin, but just the sense of them moving back into something a bit closer to the real world, you know, t- touching base with urban situations and and, and the infiltration of, of uh, um, science fiction or, or, or paranormal paranormal phenomena into these environments. And um, there's, there's a brilliant thing in it where um, 
the TARDIS lands in, in just an ordinary living room. Um, and there you've got the Doctor and Mel. And, and Mel almost is like ace in that moment. She She's not, I mean, she's, she's, she's a bit more, um, you know, happy-go-lucky than Ace would be in that. Ace would be sitting there sort of huffing because they're back in some sort of, uh, you know, ur- urban squalor that she wants to be away from. But but um, Mel's just sort of almost happy to touch base with home kind of thing. Um, but, but there's a lovely thing in it. And, and I don't know whether these are, in a way, it shows you the, the, the finesse of Russell T. Davis' writing early on that, I don't know whether it was conscious or unconscious, but there's a moment just before that scene where the villain of the piece is talking about, um, or, or, or at least his accomplices are talking about how the economy of the universe is going to unravel and everybody else apart from them is going to be left, uh, you know, going back to this primitive bartering system of you know, trading in beads or whatever. And then when they cut back to... Um, Mel and the doctor in, in, in that living room, she's thumbing through the Radio Times or something, and she says, oh, the Flintstones is on in a minute. And I, I just thought there, there was something in that that was just like, is that a little conscious echo of what we just had before? That You know, it's a little bit of dark humour about this impending sort of <laughs> return to sort of the, the Stone Age that the universe is about to un- undergo with with no awareness that, of its imminence. But... Um, you know, so there's those there's lovely little things seeded through it like that, and there's 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 a touch of sophistication in the writing even that early on. Obviously, you've got like a, some of the big Russell T Davis tropes coming in with, um, you know, strong independent female characters, um, st- stuff happening in everyday homes and, and so on and so forth. But um, what, one other thing I wanted to say was, it, it's a story that absolutely has Russell T Davis's thing of saying, right, okay, look whatever he thought of 1980s Doctor Who, and he may have had criticisms, um, but he's he's absolutely um, generous and good-hearted and celebratory of, of all the best things that are there. And what he does is, is he... I think the Sixth Doctor could have probably really done with this at the time. Somebody would come in and just be celebratory and kind about his Doctor, and it's, it's absolutely there in the writing. There's even this thing about his coat... Um, the coat, there's a, there's a beautiful description by the villain, actually, of, of the Sixth Doctor's coat. And um, it, uh, I'll just quote a tiny wee bit of it here, but it's it, it's like the delicate curve of the lapels, the arc of the violin back, and those noble buttons sitting like little gems in a coronet. Um, and then it, it, it goes on like this, and, and then at the end it says, you know, and, and the cuffs sh- shining like the rays of a thousand suns. I know it says, and then he says, to wear this coat is is to clothe oneself in the universe. And, and I just thought, that, that is beautiful. As it turns out, that particular bit was written by Scott Hancock, I think, and not Russell T. Davis. But obviously, the the intention was that Russell would have written something equally, I, I guess you could say, intentionally florid there, you know. But it's but it's beautiful, too. And um, and it, it, it says, yeah, look, you know, you know this coat that, people talk about the idea was that it was going to be a symphony in bad taste and i love the way that the symphony bit of that is echoed in the violin back you know that description and everything it's just it's just really uh i just really appreciated that that they took this this thing which was like the most castigated part of the era and said no it's it's wonderful and it's it's so doctor who and and it's a guy just going around the universe saying no this is this is how i dress take me as you find me and yes i am clothed in the universe and and, and that's entirely appropriate you know um 
anyway, look, I could, I could go on and on about the the, the, the story, and I, I better sort of park it there. But it, um, yeah, I, I just was really impressed by it. I thought uh, um, that that is a, a first effort at writing Doctor Who. It was it was something really truly special, and and a glimpse into what what I guess um, a sort of like season twenty three B could could have been just ahead of the McCoy era sort of thing and, and, and now we have it, you know. So it's 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 part of the it's part of the overall tapestry of the thing. I think it's a, a real shame that it, it sort of never happened at the time really. It was obviously a very difficult time for Doctor Who and the seventh Doctor era, when it gets going, it really does sort of have that sense of looking forward, of changing, of doing something different. Maybe with a script like this, we could have just got that a couple of years earlier. That would perhaps have been sort of, you know, a really good thing, a really positive thing. Um, But I agree with you that, you know, all the sort of hallmarks of Russell T. Davis, Doctor Who are there uh, to see. And it's sort of, it's great that that idea was allowed to sort of gestate for 20 years almost uh, before we actually got it. And obviously what we did get in, uh, those four series uh, was exceptional, and I'm sure there's more exceptional stuff to come as well. Yes, there's a lot to look forward to next next year for the the RTD two. Yeah, so um, yeah, watch this. Roll it on. Uh, have you any other picks for us? Yeah, uh, another one then then I picked um, is is Watchers, which came right at the start of the year. And it's it was uh, I think it's the second of the two um, long audio books, really audio audio novels that um, Big Finish have started to experiment with, and I I just thought yeah I have to have this one because it's season eighteen and I, and I love I love the bid me era and anything to do with it and I, and I just thought right I have to have this and also I was fascinated by the fact that it was written by Matthew Waterhouse so I thought this could be. This will be interesting, no matter what, you know. Um, and, and as it turns out, I, I think he 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 writes it really beautifully. He he puts words together so well, like the, the flow of the thing, and and crucially, he seems to just have a very strong intuitive intuitively good feel for what the era he was part of feels like. What what the DNA of it is, you know, like he's he's got all this stuff seeded through it about um, entropy. Um, some wonderful stuff about TARDIS architecture described throughout. Um, he, uh, uh, there's this giant pileup in the middle of the vortex of, of, of experimental time ships from, from, you know, the earliest attempts at time travel from all these different civilizations that have become, you know, collided together and, and they're, they're, they're becoming this huge, uh, they're trying to sort of like crush together to, form, to become a sort of fused singularity. With potentially devastating consequences inevitably, but all that you know, he's really inventive in what he comes up with there, and yet it's so it feels so um, organically part of that season. Now, now, the one thing I will say is, I rolled my eyes when I saw that the Daleks were going to be involved because I just think I have this, I just have this thing like season eighteen feels like sacred space, we're the last place where you put the Daleks, right? But as I understand it what Waterhouse had done was he'd written this thing minus the Daleks. The Daleks weren't in it. And then a suggestion came to him, I think via Nick Briggs, that, that you know, put those in as well. And to his credit, he's managed to, um, 
you know, assimilate them into the story without without overly distorting really what the story feels like. It's a, it's very much a mood piece thing, uh, uh, and the Daleks are only sort of for a lot of it. The Daleks are only sort of lightly on the fringes anyway, um, and you get to just sort of be in these spaceship environments uh, and and just and these cultures that are built up around that. Um, I have to say, actually, I, I will confess that this is going to sound an odd thing, given that I've picked it as a choice for the year. But I haven't actually finished listening to it. it it's I've still got about a, another forty-five minutes or something left to listen, and it's not. It could almost sound like a criticism, you know, a negative thing that I've said that. But it's actually that um, because of its format, I find it, and because it is season eighteen, which which is something I kind of need to nearly mood match to on any given day. Um, so maybe maybe once a fortnight, I'll feel like yeah, I want to listen to another twenty minutes of that and just really immerse myself in. So so sporadically over a month, and without like losing the track of the thing, I've kind of dipped it dipped in and out, and I still have the thing to finish. But it's it's still a choice because it, it, it's yeah, he, he has it. He has the season eighteen vibe so well, and he he narrates it really. Um, he's yeah, he, he, his narration style is is good. Like he's he's. He's got a very sort of mellifluous voice, and and there's a bit of, you can tell that he's just enjoying um, putting his own intended inflection into those words and everything. It's 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 it's, it's good, and I'm looking forward to the Kate Orman um, book that comes out. I think this January, because um, yeah. I think Kate Orman, when a big finish, is going to be a really um, just just a really exciting prospect, and, and and I hope it's as good as expected. So. Um, yeah, and I'm also just on board for any second Doctor content at all. Yes, um, and it's been read by Michael Troughton as well, which I'm uh, also sort of really looking forward to. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my my other choice for the year was um, forty, uh, both box sets of forty. So I've only just caught up with the the second of the two, so I, I've listened to it all now, and it's still quite fresh in in the memory. And look, this is one of these things where, again, I will admit that just prior to them coming out, I, I rolled my eyes a bit at what seemed to be almost like a wrong-headed approach to the 40th anniversary of the Fifth Doctor, because because they're saying, okay, we're, we're going to celebrate 40 years of, of Davison, and the way we're going to do that is to bring back um, the tomb Cybermen from the 1960s. And also the Autons, so you know, obviously, obviously the most nineteen nineteen eighties centric things you can imagine, <laughs> not, but um, somehow, despite that, almost frustratingly and counterintuitively, they've managed to pull it off. Because when I listen to these things, I sort of had to grudgingly begin to admit, no, they've come up with some good ideas here, and I suppose it's not actually that strange because. Not season nineteen so much, but by the time you get to the middle of the Davison era, you do have that thing of the show really beginning to eat its own tail a bit as far as um, past continuity and, and old things returning. And you know, the twentieth anniversary was all about like let's bring back something old in every story and so forth. So it's it's not. I guess it wasn't that crazy a thing to to do. And and the crucial thing is that actually the the. It's really a story about the, the fifth doctor himself and the regulars, and it's not it's not that the adventures that surround that are entirely incidental, but they actually have done a good job of, of presenting them with situations that foreground 
Um, just just some of the key character arcs and stuff like the, the fact that it's a splintered bit of of really early days fifth doctor consciousness you know, quantum leaped forward into random parts of his timeline and and, and there he is kind of w- suddenly with foreknowledge of Adric's death um and miss antigan with a dilemma of like do we tell him if we tell him how's it going to affect him like if he goes back um to, you know, if this if he goes back to his earlier timeline, like will taking that knowledge with him be just just uh, just hugely destructive for, for him or the timeline or something? Um, and then in the second set, when he when he for, when he flash forwards to um, right to the very end of of uh, his time with with Tegan, uh, and he's there with Turlo, um, he. There's this really lovely thing. I remember, I remember you telling me about this, Johnson, um, on a previous podcast where you, where, when I hadn't yet heard 42 and you had, and you said, look, there's, there's this moment where the doctor has an exchange with Tegan where he says, you're the person that's always been here through. through. And, and when that scene came, I was really blown away by it because uh, it's, it's very, it's very them, you know, like, first of all, he says, um, you're the silver line, you know, the, the, the one silver lining in all of, in all of this situation is you. And she starts to kind of laugh like, I, okay, we're doing that taking the piss thing that we do. And he's like, no, no, I really mean it. Like here, and, and you know, you remember that this is, this is like a version of him that's kind of going, this person who, as far as I'm aware, wants imminently to leave, get back to Heathrow as soon as possible and won't, won't be around for much longer has stayed the course with me longer than Adric, longer than Nissa. You know, she's been a steadfast friend. And there's something really moving about that. That that and that that little bit of bit of a thank you. And then he sort of does the same thing to himself at a later point. You know, it's almost like that time crash thing of getting to speak to himself, but it's it's two versions of the same incarnation. One early and one late and and that little final act of kindness where he gets catapulted to the end of his timeline because where else could he really go? He can't bring that foreknowledge of Adric's death back to him and, and he's sort of disintegrating anyway. And he ends up, you know, there's this lovely Andrazani payoff at the end. So there's there's the book ending. Every, every time Big Finish, sorry, not every time, but on a number of occasions, Big Finish have done lovely stuff with the, with the sort of bookends of the Fifth Doctor's year. This is about at least the third occasion. And every time they do, they do something really special and, and, and moving with that, and and this was no exception. And the fact that it is Tegan's last sort of, they, they do something really quite good. It it's not like in Resurrection, her decision to leave comes so out of left field. Like it's not it's not a Leela type situation. You do feel like, yes, look, she's been through Frontios and she's been through various other things where, where logically she could have quietly come to that conclusion about. Like I've had enough here. There's too much violence. I, I, I'm out, and it's a very taken thing to just make that situation, that that decision impulsively, and just go run for the hills. But but um, the fact that here they, they they just build a little bit more scaffolding around that, and and she's witnessing a lot of death and 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 beginning to formulate an idea. And you know, a, a villain actually has a very meaningful conversation with her where where, where she, she, she's kind of quizzed on like. Um, her acceptance of all these things and, and, and her own, you know, what, what would her own end point of her journey be with all of this? And, and um, yeah, so, so all of that stuff, all of the stuff of the regular characters is what makes the, that 
set that celebratory set so special the stories themselves like the actual plots they're you know fair to middling for the most part but that stuff um that's foregrounded is really really brings it a cut above and you know it's very um it's very well handled yeah absolutely and it, it I think it definitely ended up being a a really good celebration of the fifth Doctor. And when Doctor Who celebrates, it does bring in things from other eras. It does, you know, if it's other Doctors or other companions or what. So actually, in hindsight, bringing in the Cybermen, the Ice Warriors and the Autons with the fifth Doctor to celebrate 40 really worked. And uh, yeah, mm. there were just so many great little moments throughout both sets. Um. But yeah, that that exchange between the Doctor and Tegan really was um, a highlight of 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 the Fifth Doctor and Tegan at Big Finish. To be perfectly honest, um, I just thought it was excellent. And you could feel that you know the real life affection between those two in in, in the the way it's performed. Yeah, they they are one of the sort of great iconic uh, duos, Doctor Who duos, really. And uh, I'm glad that was acknowledged. Because um, they don't often get the same level of credit as perhaps the second Doctor and Jamie or the seventh Doctor and Ace in terms of being a, I suppose, definitive Doctor companion pairing. Um, so yeah, it was it was a great little moment. Can I just give an honourable mention to the um, the second Doctor box set? Uh, uh, I, I, I've really, I've always loved the season six B theory because it makes sense of so much. It sorts out a couple of continuity problems, but I also think it just is a really great space in which to try and experiment with a bit of additional s- storytelling. With with the the second Doctor immediately post um, revelation that, that that there are the Time Lords, you know. Um, but the, I really only mention it because I mean, yes, there were two pretty solid stories. It was a good start to things. But there was just one really lovely touch at the start of that that I thought was one of the the subtlest and nicest things that Big Finish did all year, which was they. So you've come off the back of the war game, so you've got the last black and white broadcast moments of Doctor Who, and then you go into what, going judging by the cover of the box set, at least is intended almost to be like the first color installment of Doctor Who, albeit on audio. Uh, and what they do is they begin that in a in a completely snowy landscape where you've got like this pale figure in a black coat the second doctor just against white and and rocks i guess or whatever and it's like this this entirely mon- oh, like it, it, it's it's almost a monographic or, or not monographic um monochromatic uh background and um th- there's just something really lovely about the fact that that it's 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 a soft transition into color because then presumably as you begin to meet other people and see other things the little bits of color just kind of creep in um so it's not the sharp short sharp shock of um spearhead it's like you know let's just get your eyes used to (laughs) you know so we'll take you into this 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 sort of grayscale environment and then just kind of um you know reveal that it is color i i I hope i'm making sense of what i'm saying but i just thought it was a lovely touch i I don't even know if it was a consciously done thing by mark ryder nicholas briggs but I, I suspect not because they don't even reference it in the extras. But on, even if it was just an unconscious thing, I just love the fact that that's what happens. You know, you go you go from black and white to like the sort of closest thing in color to black and white, and then you kind of gradually transition into the color era. 
um, and, and, and on audio of all things. So anyway, that, that's all I wanted to, to say about that because I just think it, it's it's an easily overlooked um, cool thing in the year. No, it was it was a great release. I really, really enjoyed it, and I love the fact that uh, the second Doctor is being taken in this really new, weird, and wonderful direction. I mean, it, it really is new territory for a you know a yeah. Doctor whose era ended over fifty years ago. It's fantastic. They've slightly fudged it in so far as they're not. They haven't fully leaned into yes, this this is a big gap for the you know like the the Doctor between. Uh, the war games and Spearhead, it's kind of going like this is a splinter of the Doctor, and and it's it's, it's shown that concurrently Spearhead is still playing out in, in another part of the universe, and 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 this guy is splintered off. But but that provides a really interesting opportunity for, like for instance, he could regenerate into the Fugitive Doctor or something like that. You know, it, it, there are possibilities um, down the line, and I think Michael Michael Triton's performance was was excellent. That that's. Uh, that that needs to be said. I think I, I completely forgot to mention that, and that's absolutely crucial. How how much of his his father's energy he he emulates there so successfully, and and he he has it just bang on really. Um, anyway, that's just what I wanted to say about that. Yeah, it was a well. A, you come up with a fantastic uh, selection of releases there, all sort of definitely uh, on the stronger end of what we've had this year and it has been an excellent year as i keep saying uh, well thank you very much for joining us mark it has been great to chat to you about these releases and uh we'll see you back on this podcast again soon yeah it's been it's been great thank you